Hello and welcome to the Combat Classics Podcast. This is Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas. Shiloh Brooks at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And I'm Jeff Black at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. We are continuing on our work on the Iliad. We are up to book six, and Shiloh is going to give us an overview, and Jeff's going to ask an opening question. Yeah, so in book six, the battle continues. Um, The book opens with the Achaeans who are dominating the Trojans. And so a soothsayer uh, of a sorts tells Hector, look, you've got to go back to Troy and you need to tell uh, the royal women there to make an offering to Athena because she has to be placated. Um, Then the scene sort of changes and Menelaus uh, is fighting and uh, there's this odd scene, it's very brief, where he's... uh, tempted to spare a certain Trojan warrior because he wants additional treasure and Agamemnon comes along and says, what are you doing? We don't, we don't spare our enemies. You kill them. Um, meanwhile, Diomedes is still laying waste. Um, there's a really, I thought, wonderful scene where Di- this man Glaucus uh, comes to Diomedes. They appear that they're going to engage in single combat, which I was looking very forward to. And then was sort of, you know, deeply disappointed, but also fascinated and somewhat humored when, uh, the Glaucus says to Diomedes, hey man, uh, or Di- you know, who are you? And Glaucus says, well, my grandfather was so-and-so. And Diomedes says, really? They, my grandfather was friends with your grandfather. And then they, like, they just totally make friends and exchange armor and uh, agree that they're not going to hurt each other on the battlefield anymore and tell all their friends, look, we're not going to fight each other. You guys can fight, but we're not. We can't. I can't touch this guy. Um, so they maintain the friendship. Um, then we kind of switch back to Hector, uh, who finally gets back to Troy, tells his mother, look, you've got to uh, round the ladies up and, and go pacify Athena. He then goes and visits his brother, Paris, and says, you know, come back to the battlefield. He chastises him. Paris uh, eventually agrees to join. And then, the, you know, one of the most beautiful scenes in the book occurs. Hector goes to visit his wife and his baby son. Uh, his wife asks him to stop fighting because Achilles has essentially killed every man in her family. Hector appeals to duty. Um, you know, he, he says he's got responsibilities as the prince. Interestingly, he admits that Troy will fall one day. Um, and he then gives this very um, terrifying and touching uh, account of, of his concern about his wife being enslaved one day. Um, so this is book six, and, and it's a very beautiful, uh, many very beautiful and moving scenes. Yeah, thanks, Shiloh. It, it is beautiful and moving, and um, I do wonder whether in comparison with book five, it's more beautiful and more moving. It does seem like a more human book. Um, the chief role, I think, played by the gods in this book is Athena saying no to that sacrifice that the Trojan women offer her uh, to call off the uh, and stop supporting the Greeks in the way that she is. Um, But yeah, I wanted to focus on really this episode at the end that you mentioned where Hector returns inside the walls um, to ask for this sacrifice um, to bring Paris back to the fight and also to see um, his wife and child for what he thinks is one one last time. Um, Helenus, this uh, soothsayer, um, is the one who encourages Hector to do this. Helenus is Hector's brother. Um, And he points out that a lot of the um, Trojan forces are there because of Hector, right? That Hector um, asks them to come. They came out uh, uh, for the sake of their ties to Hector. And that makes him seem like Agamemnon, right? Who is responsible for the presence of the bulk of the Greek forces, right? Uh, It makes him seem like the hero 
who is, uh, whose uh, loyalty to whom is the cause of the involvement of a lot of these uh, fighters. Um, but he also is the hero, probably the preeminent hero, better than um, uh, Aeneas and better than Paris, uh, also known as Alexander, of the Trojan side. So he, in that respect, is like Achilles. Uh, so much of what we've said so far about the Iliad has focused on the difficulty that comes from having Agamemnon and Achilles present in the same uh, army on the Greek side. Well, here it looks like we have them combined in one person, this man named Hector. Um, is it our sense that that's a good combination? Is Hector uh, a better formed human being than either Agamemnon or Achilles. Can you say just for us, which traits of Achilles and Agamemnon are present in Hector, just so we get the whole, you know, because there are things I see in him that I don't see in either of them, but I'm eager to hear what things that are in both of them are in him. Yeah, that's good. And I might also uh, take a guess at the things that are not there, right? There's there's a kind of ruthlessness in Agamemnon. Uh, we noted it uh, just now. Take no prisoners, not even unborn children, he says, right? Um, and Hector doesn't seem like he's up for that kind of um, order. Um, Achilles has an excellence that I think does surpass even Hector's excellence, right? Hector's not a demigod. Uh, Hector doesn't have the battlefield abilities that Achilles does, but he has the ability to command loyalty of Agamemnon, so he's a political human being with some sense of the importance of being skilled in that area. And he is an excellent fighter. I do think he's probably the best the Trojans can put in the field, right? And so those would be the two things that I would point to um, as the analogs of um, Achilles and Agamemnon, uh, respectively. So how, how does that work as a start? Yeah, I like that. I, I think that, um, I think you were going to tease out some differences that you saw too. Uh, I'll, I'll throw out one thing, which is, I think to some degree, Agamemnon is threatened by Achilles and Achilles thinks he should be in charge and Agamemnon wants to be in charge. I don't know if Hector wants to be in charge. I don't, I don't know, or, or maybe it's just de facto and de jour that he is in charge, and so there's just not a struggle there. But the fact in this book that you know his brother, who is a soothsayer, says, hey, go back from the battle, this pitched battle, that is unclear like who's really winning, I think, even though the Trojans are pushing to the Dardanian gates as far as they've gone. They're still taking a lot of casualties. Uh, you know, Sarpedon, who's one of the, you know, better um, warriors gets wounded. Aeneas, is, which is one of the better Trojans, gets wounded. And, you know, random soothsayer goes, hey, go back, talk to your mom. Get her to talk to the other moms and get them to lay a robe on Athena. Uh, and Hector goes, okay. <laughs> then you wonder who's in charge here? Like who, who is in charge of this army? And if it is Hector and he is bebopping back to deliver a message, that's a messenger's job. That's not a job for the general and the preeminent fighter. So 
that that's just something that that struck me as much different than what Agamemnon or Achilles would do. Yeah, maybe the implication we're supposed to see in here is that the um, the move that's being recommended by Hellenus to Hector is is actually a, a big move, and so you need to send somebody whose authority would be commensurate with the sort of sacrifices that are meant to be arranged, right? So yeah, why don't you send the private, right? Uh, running off with uh, with the information. Well, if some guy shows up and says, um, you know, to Hecuba, oh, you you have to get all the Trojan women together and, and give this sacrifice of something that's very valuable, maybe they just won't listen to him. And and I guess what that would indicate is that somehow um, the leadership inside Troy, inside the Trojan camp, and outside the Trojan camp are both on Hector's shoulders. And he can't be in both places at the same time. And that might mean also that Priam is not um, doing what he ought to be doing um, right now. He's not really exercising leadership inside the city, right? Um, maybe Priam could hear from a private and say, yeah, that's good advice. I believe that that's coming from Hector or that's coming from Hellenus, my son, right? And I'll, I'll do as they say, I'll make it so. So yeah, it does seem like maybe... Um, if anything, well, tell me whether this is fair. It kind of um, intensifies the question. It's like there's just one center to Troy, and it's either inside or outside the city. And right now it's it's Hector, and he's outside the city, right? So he's got to go back. I think there might be something else on the human level that kind of ties into Book 5 when we're talking about courage, which is getting tired, you know? As you, as you, you know, fighting a long pitched battle is exhausting. And so part of me, when Diomedes starts talking to Glaucus, is just going like, he's looking for an excuse to take a little time out, you know? Like he just wants to take a swig from the canteen, eat some beef jerky, and not fight for a little while. Um, and we used to call this, you know, being external versus being internal. Right when you're when you're in the fight and you have your wits about you and you're not exhausted and tired and hungry and thirsty and tired and sleepy and all these normal human elements like you can focus externally and you can hook and jab but like sooner or later that ability to focus externally is going to be outweighed by your internal needs and you'll start thinking about those instead of where is the enemy and how can I hurt him and so I wonder if Diomedes' conversation with Glaucus is underpinned with a little bit of that. And I wonder if Hector's, you know, kind of sitting in the rear with the gear uh, for an extended period, like going to the rear and then, I mean, chastising, like this is the most just kind of what, what is Homer trying to do here? Because, you know, he, Hector leaves, passes the message to his mom uh, to do the sacrifices and then goes and checks on Paris and chastises him for sitting in his bedroom with his wife and then is like, okay, yeah, get out there. I'm just going to go check on my wife real quick <laughs> and talk to her. Um, how is this the, the noble hero of the Trojans who doesn't have the understanding of leadership to notice that he is chastising his subordinate for doing the exact same thing that he's about to do right now? Like what, what, what is the message or what is, what is Homer trying to clue us into in terms of Hector's persona uh, in, this, in this scene? Well, I want to come to Hector's defense <laughs> real quick because 
Because Paris is not doing the same thing. I mean, Hector is a decent man. I mean, he, he, he worries about his wife's future. He holds his baby. Hector, I mean, Paris is just like a sexual, uh, you know, Helen. And it's just this, you know, very shallow um, erotic longing when compared to, to the depth, I think, of Hector. I mean, the other thing about Hector, you know, you talk about this, Jeff. This is a humanizing book. This is something I don't see in, in Achilles or Agamemnon which I just mentioned, he's a family man. He, I think he really is a family man. He, he goes to see his mother. He goes to see his brother. He goes to see his wife. He goes to see his baby. I mean, the, you know, you, don't, you just don't, I, I don't see Achilles going to see his wife and baby and holding his baby up in the air. And, you know, there's a great difference um, between, and I, I, you know, I deeply admire uh, Hector for this reason and that he's able to be both a hero and a man of some decency. Um, and I and I and I think about this as, as well with respect to what we said last time about the men's being God, the men acting like gods and the gods acting like men. I mean, you just wouldn't see a god, I don't think, with these sorts of fears that Hector has for his wife and and uh, for his baby and sort of trying to make his brother better. And um, you know, it just seems to me that he um, is very very different from a god, even or from the mortals who appear like gods, and he. Um, and he, he has genuine concerns about doing right by his family and by himself. So when his wife says, don't go back, and he says, well, I have to go back. I, I have duties, uh, sort of duties and responsibilities. And he has this moral view, uh, you know, a very moralistic view of, of his place, whereas you don't get the sense that Achilles is out there in a, in a way because it's his, it's a, his duty and it's, you know, it's the, the, the few and the proud and, you know, all this kind of thing. He's out there for something else. And so I, I noticed this about Hector. I don't know what to make of it, but it's interesting that it comes up in this humanizing book. Yeah, I, I think I agree with that. And I like your use of the word depth in connection with this thing that we're detecting in Hector. Um, it does seem to me like Paris and Achilles and Agamemnon have a kind of simplicity to them. They're like specialized human beings, if I can put it that way. And that simplicity um, uh, yields a kind of shallowness or a singleness of focus, right? So, you know, uh, Paris is not stupid. He knows that having just been rebuked uh, for uh, spending his time with Helen, right? Uh, Hector, um, then goes off and uh, spends time with his family so that when Paris runs into him again as they're both headed out to the battlefield, Paris says something funny like, oh, you must really have been hurrying that I caught you here, right? You know, to, to kind of give him a dig. So Paris knows that there's part of Hector that is like Paris or something in Paris that's like Hector. But Paris, that's the main thing. Right? Maybe the only thing, the chief driver, uh, he's beloved of Aphrodite, whereas in the case of Hector, it's got to coexist with these other things that Shiloh's enumerated. Um, so, but the question is, is this coexistence, um, is it problematic? And let me just point out one thing that he says, and I'll, I'll try to quote it from memory. I won't get it exactly the way it is in the text. But he, on the one hand, says, Troy is fated to fall. He just knows that Troy will end. And on the other hand, he says that he has this hope or wish that his son will be a greater warrior than he is. Um, do we think those two things go together? Can we 
try to say how they might both coexist because they seem to follow from uh, two parts of his character, those views. Well, I mean, you could just say that he's talking about the temporality of, you know, any man-made thing and say, you know, it might be, might not be today, might not be tomorrow, might not be 10 years from now, but Troy will fall sooner or later. And that's the best case scenario. The best case is that Troy will fall one day, but well after him and his son and his son's sons, like, you know, pass away. But that's still a very depressing thing regardless to say, especially in a situation like that where, you know, your your wife says, um, you know, predicts doom and points at like the weakness of the walls. And you're like, yeah, no, Troy's going to fall. <laughs> like, come on, have the decency to lie to your spouse, you know, <laughs> like just say something nice. Uh, that you don't believe is true because, you know, you can at least provide some degree of comfort in that situation versus, you know, also kind of predicting doom and gloom, but then throwing a bone of like, well, maybe it won't happen right now. Andromache, by the way, I'm fairly impressed by, right? She is not told by Hector to go join the woman in the sacrifice that is being offered, right? Uh, She's not told to go back to the house and resume her work or something like that, although that is what she eventually ends up doing. But uh, she's there at the wall. She's looking at uh, things as they unfold. I think partly to see if she can catch sight of her husband, of course, but I think partly because she seems informed and to be thoughtful about uh, the strategy that's being pursued, right? And she thinks it's not wise. Uh, I think that she's aware that if they keep doing this, Hector will die before Troy falls, right? And uh, he hopes that that's true. He wants to be buried before the city is sacked, right? Um, so yeah, it's 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 true that it's a kind of dire... Um, prediction and it'd be hard to hold in your heart even if you thought oh Troy will fall just eventually um but but this is this is worse than that Troy will fall soon during during my lifetime or soon after my lifetime yeah again super super depressing and and contrary to I guess what you'd want to see from a leader you know be positive brief brief every mission like it's going to work he can he can imagine with i mean breathtaking realism the details of his wife's enslavement and so on the one hand troy's going to fall on the other hand he has this image in his mind of his wife you know fetching water for some person as a as a slave and people looking on her and saying oh there's the wife of the great warrior hector and so i can't i mean you, you know you can talk about prudence and these sorts of things and um you know, but I cannot imagine a man agreeing to stay home who has that vision in his mind, regardless of his knowledge that he knows he will be defeated. I mean, you know, Hector's not going to go down. I mean, he I, maybe he's convinced his wife will be a slave. I mean, if, if, if he's right about Troy, he's got to be right about that, too. But I, I, I can't it's not within it's not consistent with his character for him to set those two things aside one, one another and say, well, all right, well then I may as well just you know hang out with my wife the way my brother does, who I've been totally critical of for, for a long time. 
it, it would just it just wouldn't make sense. And so there's something in him that despite the terrifying vision which he harbors, which he's now said aloud to her, that alone moves him beyond reason um, uh, to, to, to continue fighting. And this, this is impressive to me. I don't think it's stupid or, or you know, hypocritical or shallow. I can imagine wanting to do the same thing. Yeah. Well, there, there's a, another. Go ahead, oh, go, go ahead, on, Brian. Go ahead. I was just going to say, there's another detail that I think contributes to this. It's the um, episode with Astyanax, the child, um, where uh, Hector, who's wearing his helmet, uh, reaches out to hold Astyanax, and um, the nodding of the plume of the helmet, and you can imagine also just the look of the helmet, terrifies the child. And he and Andromache laugh at this. And he takes his helmet off and he puts it down and uh, he embraces the child without it on. Um, but the laughter really strikes me and it seems to me to have something in common with this um, uh, resolution that, that Shiloh is mentioning, right? That even though um, from every reasonable perspective, it looks like the city is doomed and so there might be an argument to abandon uh, the attachment to the city, um, he's not crushed beneath this. Right, that there's a feeling both on his part and on his wife's part, a, a moment of, of being above it, right, in connection somehow with their child and their child's um, reactions. So yeah, I, I, I think I would, I would line this up with uh, um, things that Shiloh was praising in Hector's character. But yeah, Brian, I mean, so you were gonna say, oh, go I ahead. just mean, you know, such is the course of human events. I mean, I think he has some knowledge from the heights even tragedy appears comedic. I've said that before on this podcast. It was said by a very great man. Um, and, and I think that Hector and his wife have a, and Homer <laughs> for sure, uh, have a sense for that. And so in a way, I mean, Hector's moral, but I don't think he's so morally naive as to be unwise. I don't, I'm not convinced that there's not some shred of wisdom to this man. I mean, after all, I mean, you know, look at the way he sees his brother. I mean, just get this guy, you know, you can imagine having a brother like that. And, and, um, you know, I just, I just think there's some um, uh, perspective that Hector operates from, which is much, much higher, but still distinctively human than many of the other human characters, or even the gods, frankly, uh, in the book. Yeah, I was just trying to flip back to the message from Zeus to the Trojan assembly that, that brought them out. Um, to try to give us a little bit of backstory because we've pointed at the fact that Troy has been fairly successfully defended for almost 10 years. And now the Tro Zeus sends a messenger. Is it the beginning of book two? Like he sends a dream to Agamemnon, but then he sends a message to the Trojans. Um via you know a god dressed as i think it's hermes dressed as uh or in the appearance of one of the trojan um one of the sons of priam and says you know get out there and, and whoop it on uh bu -bu -bum. yeah iris this is book two around 790 uh, dun, 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 dun. so iris takes the voice of 
Priam's son Polites, <clears throat> and let's see, goes to the Trojan Council and says, this is like 795 in book two, old sir, endless talk is always dear to you as before in the days of peace, but war unceasing has arisen. And to be sure, I have entered into many a battle with men, but never have I beheld such a force and in such numbers more numerous than leaves of grains of sand. The men advance across the plain towards the city to do battle. Hector, on you above all I lay this injunction to do as I say. Many allies are around the great city of Priam, and every language of those widely scattered men is different from the others. Let each man give orders to those troops he leads, and once he has marshaled his fellow citizens, have him lead them forth. So Iris spoke, and Hector did not fail to recognize the words of a goddess, and at once he broke the assembly, and the men rushed to their arms. So I guess there's two things in that. One is, again, who's in charge? Because Hector just kind of does what other people tell him to do. Um, and why can't he change his mind? You know, why can't he just go, oh, this isn't, we did it. We went out. Okay, gods, you're satisfied. We're going to go back behind the walls. So it just seems tricky that Hector, for, for all his kind of, is it nobility or is it, you know, an over, over piousness? of whenever he thinks the gods are trying to communicate it, he does it. And then maybe the overarching lesson is that does not work well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this, this is very hard for me because um, it seems to me right that if Hector had ordered a withdrawal, um, the Greeks might not have been able to prevail, right? Although, you know, as the story happens, there is uh, this horse that they build, right? We'll le- learn about this later in the Odyssey that they fill with soldiers. In other words, the city is only going to fall by stealth anyways, right? The battlefield victory is not going to be decisive. But it's funny how Hector's perspective seems to have overleaped all of those strategic considerations to say something like... Um, Troy's going to fall, it's going to fall imminently. Maybe it deserves to fall. Um, and so, you know, nonetheless, I'm going to continue to defend it, but I'm going to be preoccupied with the fate of my son and, and my wife, or I'm going to be concerned about the fate of my son and my wife, who will outlive the city, both of them, right? Um, so, yeah, it seems like his um, his insight into the situation prohibits him from... Uh, taking independent control and trying to make things work out that way is more strategically sensible. Um, I wonder whether he thinks that there's something deeply flawed about Troy that um, is expressed in Paris or Alexander, his brother, and is also expressed in Priam. One thing I notice in this book that's really interesting to me is it looks like Priam's um, house in Troy consists of all these rooms in which in each of which lives one of his sons or one of his daughters with the spouse. So it's like this hive where all these married couples live, right? Like, do you want to really live in your, in your uh, father-in-law's house, right? Um, now, there's an exception. Uh, in fact, there are two exceptions. I think Paris has his own house, and I think um, Hector has his own house, his own palace in the complex that is at the center of Troy. So not that separate, but somewhat separate from Priam's hive. So I wonder whether there isn't some thought in here that um, Troy is flawed 
And Hector is not 100% um, Trojan in that sense. Yeah, what, what do you see as the differentiation between what is Trojan and what is Hector? Yeah, that's, that's hard. Um, not automatic loyalty to Paris because of brotherly bonds, a certain cosmopolitan um, orientation um, that looks outside of the city, um, maybe a longer future orientation than Priam has, and um, a sense that his allegiance to Troy is the product of training or force. So some kind of reflection on his own habituation to fight for Troy out of shame, he says, right? A kind of distance on his military training, if I can put it that way. Um, yeah, some competing, well, this is where I see the, the, the Achilles tie-in, right? This, this competing choice or competing piece of their nature where Achilles is like, well, I can leave and survive or I can fight and die. And it seems like Hector is maybe having something similar. I can fight and die, or I can pull back behind the walls and at least maybe push that back a little bit longer. So maybe that kind of competing once needs desires is something the two of them share. Yeah, that's interesting because for each of them, the other alternative seems really pallid, right? Achilles going back home and living out his life to old age, or Hector retreating back in the walls, uh, maybe like Priam would rather do, um, and just shutting himself up in the house with his brothers and sisters. Um, both of those seem like really thin alternatives as compared to the ones that each hero finally does pursue. Yeah. Well, that might be a good note to end this book six on. Uh, yeah. So thank you, Shiloh. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, thank you, yeah, thank you guys. dear listener. Uh, we will put another plug in for our phone number. 703-677-8645. Put it in the show notes. Uh, if you have a question, you can call us and just leave a voicemail. And uh, we might play that on air and, and, and take a stab at answering it. So feel free to reach out and give us a call. You can also email us, combatandclassics at gmail.com if you just want to do it that way. We'll put that in the show notes as well. Uh, so thanks, guys. Uh, tune in next time, and we will either have some more Anabasis or Iliad, <laughs> one of the two. Um, but we appreciate your support. You can also uh, donate to us on our newly remodeled website. Thanks to Jeff's uh, artistic web design skills, uh, combatandclassics.org. So reach out, love to hear from you, donate if you feel like it, and thanks for listening.